This is an ABC podcast. It was the wedding of the year. The granddaughter of one of India's wealthiest men, G.V. Krishna Reddy, was marrying the heir to a big infrastructure company. The wedding lasted three days and reportedly cost $18 million. Bollywood stars were there, as was the Indian Prime Minister. And also, three Australian Federal Coalition MPs. There were about 10,000 people at this event. This is Julie Bishop. She'd flown to the wedding on a private jet alongside billionaire mining magnate Gina Reinhart. Liberal MP Theresa Gambaro and National Senator Barnaby Joyce were also along for the ride on what they called a study tour. I sought and received prior approval for my study leave. The wedding I attended was no social event. It was more like a um, very high-powered gathering of some of the most significant business and political figures in India. Gina Reinhardt didn't fly them home, though. For that, they charged the taxpayer a total of $12,000. And the politicians were forced to defend themselves in interviews. For me, it was also an education process to work out exactly how business is done at the top level internationally. Uh, it's very hard to explain to uh, the general public that you might go to these weddings, but it's really ipso facto, a business function. Labor government ministers Wayne Swan and Martin Ferguson had also been invited, but respectfully declined. Gina Reinhardt, at the time, was hoping to seal a deal with the bride's grandfather's company, GVK Group, over a mining opportunity in Queensland. When Gina Reinhardt said, look, we're trying to develop a market into India, um, I, you know, I was very mindful that if there was some minor role for me in that, then I'd, I'm happy to play it. People said, well, why would you be involved with that? Because the royalties go back to Queensland. Three months after the wedding, Gina Reinhardt and GV Krishna Reddy signed a billion-dollar deal to share a stake in a coal lease near the Queensland town of Alpha. The wedding and the deal were one part of a frenzy of activity as Indian, Australian and Chinese companies scrambled to grab a piece of the Galilee Basin, one of the world's largest untapped coal reserves. Mining that coal was set to trigger a new economic boom for Queensland and create tens of thousands of jobs. But, well, they ran into a few problems. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Australia If You're Listening, a podcast about why Australia's found it so hard to tackle climate change and what that means for the future. In Australia, we like to think that we have some control over our economy, but when it comes to our multi-billion dollar coal export industry, it's decisions made in foreign countries and large financial institutions that matter most. Promises of selling coal for centuries to come don't mean squat if there's no one to buy it. In this episode, the story of the political and economic forces that really decide how much coal Australia digs up and how long we'll be digging it up for. The 1970s Japan was a country in a hurry. Tokyo to Osaka, 300 miles in three hours. The fastest train in the world for the country with the fastest growth rate in the world. 
they were building modern skyscrapers, big road and rail projects, they had factories pumping out cars and electronics, and all of that needs steel. Steel needs iron ore and coal. And Japan had basically neither of these things. So they bought it from us. Gladstone, Queensland, where 2,000 tonnes of coking coal an hour, 24 hours a day, are loaded on ships supplying 40% of Japan's needs. A relationship was built with Japan over coal. For three decades, beginning in the 70s, Japan was Australia's top trading partner by far. To the Japanese, the deal isn't as important as it is to Australia. If we don't want to sell at their price, others will. Japan needed all the coal they could get, and they needed it, like, yesterday. Australian mining companies and governments worked together to try and get it to them. They teamed up with scientists to make Australian mines the most efficient in the world. Queensland coal is selling at $13 to $14 a tonne, $10 a tonne below comparable coal from America. In fact, this was the first time coal from Queensland had been exported in any serious way. Japan needed so much coal that Australia's traditional coal export port, Newcastle, couldn't dig it up fast enough. A whole new coal region was opened up about 100 kilometres inland from the central Queensland coast. Queensland's coal heart is the Bowen Basin. There's about 8 billion tonnes of coking and non-coking coal just waiting to be dug up and sold. A lot of things have changed since the 1970s, but... One of them is how easy it is to wander onto a mine site and interview the workers. What sort of money are you making on this this site? This is ABC reporter Paul Lynham, and he's at a mining site in Queensland's Bowen Basin, asking the workers how much they earn. Oh, it depends on the amount of overtime you work, really. But is it much better than you'd expect to get in, say, Sydney or Melbourne? Oh, yeah. Well, I've never been there. About double. My favourite part of that, by the way, is the guy saying, well, I've never been there. I mean... How would he know what you'd make in Sydney or Melbourne? The vast majority of the profits from these mines were being sent offshore, but the salaries were still pretty great. What do you do? Uh, senior foreman in the coal preparation plant, Gu and Yellowman. And how much a week do you earn? That'll be giving it away, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, I'm on uh, 25000 a year. At the time, the average annual salary in Australia was under $8,000. $25,000 a year. Mm. Where else could you earn that sort of money in Australia? I don't know. Robbing banks? Actually, bank robbers at the time would have been lucky to get that much in a year. This was a big deal for central Queensland. Thousands of reliable, steady, high-paying jobs in a part of the country which previously relied on farming for almost all all of its income. By the end of the 1980s, Queensland had overtaken New South Wales to become the biggest coal-producing state in Australia, all thanks to the Bowen Basin mines. Australia had become the biggest coal exporter in the world. Everything was looking pretty super-duper. But in the 1990s, our number one customer started getting ideas. Dangerous ideas. Across Japan, environmentalists rallied today, calling for the nations of the world to reach agreement in Kyoto. We've already talked about the role Australia played in the 1997 UN Climate Change Conference in Kyoto. But for this story, it's important to understand what other countries were doing as well. I particularly wish to urge the developed countries with the greatest economic capacity, including my own country, to demonstrate such spirit and leadership in action. 
Japan was keen to wind back its emissions, but not for the reason you think. At that time, that the Japan Japanese government was not so much serious about climate change. Mika Obayashi is the director of the Renewable Energy Institute in Japan. She says the government's interest was less in saving the planet and more in justifying their big investment in nuclear energy. Japan would host this conference because to prove that without nuclear power, that we cannot achieve the climate change target. Japan had it pretty easy though. Their economy was becoming high tech and efficient, and their emissions had flatlined without much effort. But we still continue to grow. Um, but uh, we could do it with the less energy, and also sometimes that we can reduce the carbon emission at the same time. So that that says that the decoupling of the economy and the greenhouse gas emissions and and the energy um, demand. They and other advanced economies in Europe wanted everyone else to start cutting emissions too. A lot of countries weren't happy with that. We want our fair share. The Indian government was not a fan of this demand. They said all the rich countries got to use coal and other fossil fuels to get rich, so it was only fair that they got to do that too. As long as you are prepared to give us our fair share, we learn to live within it. For India to cut back their emissions, they would basically have had to give up on becoming a rich country. This was unacceptable to them, obviously. So they and China, who was in the same boat, demanded to be allowed more time to develop before they started to rein in emissions. The fossil fuel industries of Australia and the United States decided to make a big deal out of this to try and convince their own governments to refuse to make cuts. The one issue where little progress appears to have been made is demands generated by the U.S. fossil fuel industry that poorer developing nations also agree here to reducing their emissions. Australian and U.S. negotiators demanded China and India sign on. The Chinese representative was furious. This is illegal, out of context, out of being mandated, and going against the convention. I hope, Mr. Chairman, you take the message, which is a firm, firm no. Thank you. So India and China left Kyoto with a different deal to the developed world: permission to keep burning coal while their economies grew. Now, the interesting thing about the global coal trade is it's not based on who uses the most coal or who has the most coal. It's based on situations where those two numbers don't match up. Australia has a huge amount of coal, but it doesn't need much at all. Japan has virtually no coal, but it needs a lot of it. Hence, why they get it from us. China and India need a lot of coal, but they also have a lot of coal. So India's industrial heritage is is built on on indigenous coal, largely mined in the eastern regions of the country. This is Nilima Jain. I'm the deputy director and senior fellow with CSIS. She works with governments in India and the US on energy and climate change, among other things, and she's here to tell a pretty incredible story. And it starts. In a tiny town in eastern India, the journey of industrial coal mining in India begins really from Jharia, which is a town in the district of Thanbad, in the state of Bihar. Jharia is the coal capital of India, and it's well, it's a truly horrific place. It's the most polluted city in India. The air is thick with smoke. 
you can clearly see the dampness in air and the, 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 the smokiness. It's been like that for a long time. The coal mine there is actually underneath the town. And just over 100 years ago, that coal caught a light. Some incident resulted in, in fire of one of the coal fields, which was very, very shallow. The fire spread through the coal seam under the town. Smoke plumed up from the ground. The miners and the government tried to put it out, but couldn't. The fire has been burning for more than 100 years. As demand for coal started to rise and the amount of money involved increased, the administration running these state-owned mines became increasingly corrupt. Eventually, they became an organised crime group, a coal mafia, an incredibly powerful one. If you look at the total coal production in India, about 20 to 30% of coal production are rooted from coal mafia. So to get coal in India, you need to negotiate with the Jaria Coal Mafia, who dig up low-quality coal from an old-fashioned, inefficient mining operation which, by the way, has been on fire for 100 years. If you're a 21st century company owner who holds $18 million weddings for your granddaughter, that prospect might be unappealing to you. So in the late 2000s, Indian power companies GVK Group and Adani Group decided to get around the Dickensian nightmare that is buying coal in India and started getting it elsewhere. They bought mines in Indonesia, then they set their eyes on Australia. Their plan was to build enormous mines, bigger than anything seen in Australia before. There was nowhere in the Hunter Valley or Bowen Basin to build something that big. Their eyes turned to the Galilee Basin, but they weren't alone. What's significant about the project is that it's Australia's largest project with about $7 billion of capital investment and creating around 6,500 jobs in construction, around 1,700 jobs during the operation of the plant. In 2009, Queensland billionaire Clive Palmer entered into an agreement with a Chinese state-owned company to build the first mine in the Galilee Basin. Waratah Coal wants to start construction work within the year. If all goes to plan, exports will begin in 2013. What we now have is a signed 20-year agreement. The Queensland Labor Premier Anna Bly was very excited about the project. What this project means is direct jobs for some 7,500 people. According to the government and the mining bosses, it meant lots of solid jobs for central Queensland. You know, the ones where you make more than a bank robber. By 2012, billionaire Gina Reinhart, with the help of Barnaby Joyce and Julie Bishop, had sealed the deal with Indian billionaire G.V. Krishna Reddy for two giant mines right next door to Clive Palmer's. Soon afterwards, a fourth billionaire, Indian Gatamadani, joined the party with a proposed mine 180 kilometres north. Adani hopes to start production at the Carmichael coal mine by 2015. A number of massive hurdles stood in the way of the four billionaires' ambitions. Firstly, there was the concern that mining hundreds of square kilometres of rural Queensland might disturb sacred Indigenous sites. We don't consent to them destroying our homelands and our, our laws and customs and destroying our cultural heritage. There were concerns for the local environment. Threatened species are important. Wildlife is important. Australians and Queenslanders are very proud of our unique biodiversity. Then there was the fact that shipping billions of tonnes of coal out of the nearest port would mean running thousands of giant ships through the Great Barrier Reef. They've recommended that there be no new ports, that our reef not be turned into a coal and gas highway and have the guts dredged out of it. 
then there was the fact that the Galilee Basin is a very long way from the nearest ship. Australia's export coal fields, the Bowen Basin and the Hunter Valley, are right near the coast. It's a short train ride to the port where the coal gets loaded onto ships. The Galilee Basin is in the middle of nowhere. A five-hour drive from the coast, and there's no railway line to carry the coal on. I mean, there's a reason nobody had ever mined there before. It's really hard and expensive. The four mining billionaires wanted government assistance to build a big, high-capacity rail line. The state government, under both Liberal National and Labor premiers, spent years talking about the advantages the mines would bring. It's clear that these projects are not only vital to the Queensland economy, they are vital to Queensland communities. The greatest benefit of these projects lies in the creation of thousands of new jobs and the prosperity they can create. As time went on, Adani broke ahead of the pack. It looked like they would become the first mine to get approval. What I do know about Adani is it means thousands of jobs for regional Queenslanders. But despite the apparent enthusiasm of everyone involved, billionaires and governments alike, nothing was being built. Primarily it was activism and and decisions by governments not to make decisions. This is the head of the Queensland Resources Council and former Federal Resources Minister Ian McFarlane. So we saw Adani pushed around like an ice puck in Queensland one minute. Premier was up there cutting ribbons. Next minute, the approval process literally just stalled and it took some time to get that going again. In the meantime, we had court case after court case. On top of that, Adani was struggling to find financial organisations interested in investing in its project. Opposition was fierce. Climate activists were concerned that if Adani was approved, it would be the first domino to fall and open up the Galilee Basin to Palmer, Reinhardt, Reddy and other hungry miners. Finally, in 2018, as bushfires raged across the region they intended to start mining, Adani announced they would just fund it themselves. We are starting the mine. The mine they were building was far smaller than initially planned, and instead of building a $2 billion high-capacity rail line to Abbott Point, they'd build a small, narrow-gauge track to link up with the existing rail network. It would come in at half the price, and the amount of coal it could handle would be much smaller. The audacity of this company to announce a new coal mine right when half of Queensland is on fire from climate-driven extreme weather events, it is just outrageous. This announcement that the mine would be built came at a pretty interesting time in politics. It appears Adani will be taking centre stage as an election issue heading into this campaign. A federal election was on the way and Queensland was the crucial battleground. Able. To stop Adani coal mine. This is going to be the climate election. This is one of the most important issues for North Queensland. Herbert is going to be a very tough seat for them to hold. The Adani issue there is is monumentally difficult. The Adani mine was promising less than 2,000 jobs. But to hear it talked about in Queensland, you'd think it promised much more than that. Voters across the state were told opponents to the mine were directly threatening their livelihoods. It's an issue that straddles both the the north and south of Queensland, let alone the north and south of, of the east coast of Australia. The debate raged outside Queensland too. It became the centre of arguments about climate change, coal jobs and the economy. The Labor Party was unclear about its position on the mine, but the Greens were not. We are the people up against enormous corporate interests 
who are uh, taking coal out of Australia and exporting 70% of the profit. A convoy of Greens activists, led by former Greens leader Bob Brown, travelled to central Queensland to oppose the construction of the mine. We've been gathering support right across Australia, which has a majority of people opposed to the Adani mine. They arrived in the small town of Clermont, the nearest town to the mine site, to a frosty reception. They're not welcome here at all, and uh, I advised them not to try and come in because they've only turned away. I think that was a really foolish a piece of political campaigning. Judy Brett, a professor of politics at La Trobe University, says the anti-Adani convoy backfired. It led voters to rally behind the mine in the crucial battleground state of Queensland. It just highlighted for many people in Queensland who live in outback Queensland the, the sense that the people down south didn't understand their world, didn't have any sympathy for them, and what we saw is that the Labor vote collapsed in, in some of those seats. Michelle Landry, the Nationals MP representing the seat the Adani mine was set to be built in, was sure Bob Brown's convoy had helped her over the line. I was hopeful that I would win, but I never expected numbers like this. And uh, Labor is hemorrhaging to one nation. Thank you, Bob Brown. Thanks to their poor results in Queensland, Labor lost the election. Last summer, the Adani mine in the Galilee Basin shipped its first load of coal. But here's the thing. They're very lonely out there. Palmer, Reddy and Reinhardt are nowhere near starting work on their projects, neither are any Chinese or Japanese coal mining companies. So why did the Galilee Basin, seen for a decade as the Valley of Gold, end up with only one lonely mine? Well, it's because during that decade-long battle, far away from the Galilee Basin, a lot of things changed. April 2017 was the 200th anniversary of the founding of Westpac. The bank threw a big party in Sydney to celebrate this milestone birthday. Black tie, formal sit-down dinner, sort of a fair where the symphony orchestra plays after you eat. The guest list was a who's who of Australian finance and politics. But as they were arriving, they were confronted with a protest. Protesters with megaphones and Stop Adani placards crowded the entrance. Several protesters snuck into the invite-only event disguised as members of the orchestra. One chained himself to a lighting rig and had a shouting match with the bank's CEO. The protesters were demanding Westpac rule out providing financial support to the Adani coal mine. Within weeks, Westpac were copying it not from protesters but from the Federal Resources Minister, Matt Canavan. May I suggest those Queenslanders that are seeking a home loan or a long-term bank deposit or some such in the next few months might want to back a bank that is backing the interests of Queenslanders. Any questions? Yes, I have some questions. Like, what happened here and why? To find some answers, I went to Mary Delahunty. I'm the head of impact for HESTA. HESTA is a Australian superannuation fund and we look after around $67 billion on behalf of 860,000 members. She's one of the people who figures out how to invest that $67 billion in superannuation, what to put all that money in to try and make it grow. Traditionally, investing in coal mines was a pretty safe bet, but that's been changing really quickly. So I had a lot of questions for Dilahanti. Here's one of them. A really important one. Can you explain what a stranded asset risk is if to someone mm. who would never have heard that term before? 
The risk of stranded assets is exactly as it sounds. So let's say you're going to hold something in the portfolio. One of the risks that you look at is, does this have uh, longevity? Does this have a future? Can I hold this for a good long life? Or is is there a risk that this particular asset won't make any money anymore and beyond that, won't have anyone who will buy it? And that is a stranded asset. So a stranded asset is like a VHS tape factory or a big hoard of hand sanitizer you bought in March 2020. It's something you spent a lot of money on that is now basically worthless. About a decade ago, as the billionaires were starting to talk about digging up the Galilee Basin, a different discussion was starting to brew in international financial circles. Would coal mines and coal-fired power stations end up as stranded assets? Hester was involved in those conversations and watching them internationally. In stark contrast to what was happening in Australia, it was evident at that time that we as a country didn't quite have the grasp on what the future looked like. In 2014, Delahunty's super fund Hester said they would no longer be investing in new thermal coal mining. And that's a big problem. Because big new mines are very expensive and they need investors. The development of new production capacity in thermal coal is pretty much aimed now at the harder to get at thermal coal. The easy thermal coal is actually already being deployed. Therefore, the new developments will have higher cost. So all the easy coal is already being mined. That leaves harder to get coal, like in the Galilee Basin. But harder to get means more expensive to mine. And as countries start to cut their coal usage, these new mines will be the first to go broke. They'll be the first assets which potentially become stranded as um, thermal coal energy production is is, uh, replaced by renewable energy production. Hester said their decision was based on cold, hard economics. But activists had a role to play too cutting off coal's access to funds. In 2010, a campaign began in America to try and get organisations with big piles of money to stop investing in fossil fuel companies. We have a list of 200 companies that we'd like people to divest from, the biggest carbon reserves in the world. Uh, So far, I mean, early days, but a wide variety of uh, American institutions have begun to divest. Five colleges and universities so far. 10 city governments, including Seattle and San Francisco. Divestment, the opposite of investment, pulling all your money out of the assets contributing to climate change. This movement started to catch on in Australia. Churches were the first to sign up. Then in 2015, the city of Newcastle, home to the world's biggest coal exporting port, signed up too, along with other local councils around the country. At the time, the amount of money involved was still small and not enough to force change, but it has grown and grown. Around the world, the total value of the institutions divesting from fossil fuels has grown to nearly $60 trillion. This is a massive problem for anyone who wants Australian coal mining to keep growing into the future. By 2017, the big Australian banks became a target. Westpac's decision not to fund any new coal fields rules out involvement in Adani's massive proposed mine in Queensland's Galilee Basin. The Federal Resources Minister at the time, Queensland National Senator Matt Canavan, called a press conference. 
All good? Yep. Okay. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for being here. Uh, today I wanted to make some comments on uh, Westpac's decision not to uh, lend to coal mines in new basins uh, in Australia, new coal basins. Canavan, a huge supporter of developing the Galilee Basin, was furious. Westpac have, in this decision, turned their back uh, on Queenslanders and the development of Queensland. He basically called the bank chicken, saying they were caving in to the protesters who had stormed their 200th birthday a couple of weeks earlier. Corporations, unfortunately, today are, are wimps in regard to standing up to these activists that, you know, a few people angrily appear at a dinner uh, that Westpac held and they apparently changed the world. And he suggested that Queenslanders might like to bank elsewhere. But, well, as divesting took off, other banking options became more and more limited. The fact is, a number of big banks and superannuation funds have now committed to phasing out coal investment. Mary Delahunty says these banks and super funds aren't being activists and that the end of coal is... It is simply a cold hard fact. Is that a self-fulfilling prophecy, though? As in, you are helping make sure that that is the case, are you not? There's, a, there's an element of, of a self-fulfilling prophecy in it, as in we know that, that, that us speaking of stranded asset risk may uh, increase the stranded asset risk, but it doesn't um, take away from the fact that it's the truth. Mary Delahunty says that because climate change is a risk to everything and everyone, adopting a net zero target and encouraging action on climate change is not just the best thing to do morally, it's actually the smart move. So it's not so much, you know, a sacrifice of, of one asset, mm. um, but you also need to, to say, well, that, does that alleviate the risk to the whole economy? But Ian McFarlane, on behalf of the coal mining companies across Queensland, says divesting from Australian coal mines will just make the problem of climate change worse. If you want to minimise the impact on climate change of the, by the burning of coal, then you should be buying Queensland coal and it should be the last coal used in a steel mill or used in a furnace. And that's the logic of it. I mean, it's an entirely logical argument. This is an argument made by coal proponents across the country. To reduce emissions around the world, our coal industry has an important part to play. That Australia mines good quality coal, which burns efficiently, and it mines it in a way that affects the environment as little as possible. The argument goes that other countries are still burning coal, and they have to get it from somewhere, and if they get it from Australia, that's the best case scenario for the planet. Getting it from coal mines in places like Indonesia or India would be worse. If we don't develop our own resource, it will just be displaced. But India will still use coal. They will still uh, expand their coal-fired power production sector. It will just come from sources that are lower quality than here in Australia. We'll have it less environmental, less ESG governance, less community awareness. And as I say, we'll be a lower quality coal, so its direct impact on the environment will be higher. Now, the move to divestment and a lack of interest in funding new coal projects, it's not an Australian phenomenon. It's happening all over the world, including the countries buying our coal. So regardless of how long we want to keep selling it, how long are they going to keep buying it? Japan is starting the process of winding back their coal usage. Prime Minister Suga announced that the carbon neutrality to be reached by 2050. That's a kind of a huge surprise. In late 2020, Japan made an announcement. After being pretty lax about emissions reduction, they suddenly said they would go for carbon neutrality by 2050. This initiative 
from the government came because of the kind of international pressure, not the politics, but the international competition pressure. Japan's electronics manufacturing industry was given an ultimatum. American tech giants, including Apple, Google and Facebook, all announced they would be going 100% green by 2030 and demanded the companies they work with, including in Japan, follow suit. And that really forced the national government as well to set the new target and then announce the new commitment. So Japan is winding down. Korea is also winding down. And China has cut us off completely. Is India our last option, our last chance to expand our our coal mining practices in this country? Or, you know, is there some other country out there that is going to suddenly need more coal than they need at the moment? Oh, it seems to be that India is, they've certainly been the most vocal about the longevity that they see in where their energy supplies are coming from. And yet? Yeah, I have to say Adani Group has has evolved dramatically in the last five years. While they were waiting for approvals for their Queensland mine, Adani changed. Almost half the company is now devoted to developing renewable energy. And the coal side of the business has been diminishing in the last, you know, six, seven years. I think today where it stands, it it is about only seven to eight percent of the overall business. I don't think that the coal business has been very profitable for Adani. The change in Adani reflects a change across India, which is going in hard on renewables. If you look at the investments that have happened in 2020, 80% of the investments that have happened in the power sector have gone into renewable energy. While India is still building coal-fired power stations, the number in the pipeline is shrinking rapidly. Ian McFarlane concedes that demand won't stay high forever. The demand for fossil fuel is going to change and Australia will respond to that change. The government, meanwhile, is unsure. Last year, the Resources Minister Keith Pitt said he didn't know what the future held. Uh, There are opportunities for Australian exporters to fill those markets, and they will. And now will things change in 20, 30, 40, 50 years? (laughs) If I had that sort of foresight, friend, I'd be a rich man. Predicting the future is a big ask. But planning for it as best we can is very much the job of a government minister. The thing about Australia's debate over our coal industry is it's actually not really up to us. The vast, vast majority of our coal industry is designed to supply other countries' needs, fill the gap between production and consumption. But around the world, that gap is closing. Fast. Australia, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Sam Dunn and Will Ockenden with research by Lexi Metherall. Our series producer is Jess O'Callaghan. Next. At the beginning of the 21st century, Australians were pretty unequivocal about their support for action on climate change. The News Poll survey of more than 1,000 Australians found 80% think Australia should ratify the Kyoto Protocol. But a small group of people connected with the mining industry were determined to change the public's mind. Now, I don't think that the population understands what's at stake in this issue. Within the space of a decade, they shifted public debate from consensus to doubt. Almost certainly greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are not what is changing world climate. They undermined the voices of experts. It led to my dismissal from CSIRO. 
and cost Australia valuable time in adapting to climate change. The story of how they did it is next on Australia for Listening.